welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Montpelier Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. How are you doing, Emily? Hi, Olga. It's nice to see you today. It's nice to see you too. Can you believe we're just like weeks, not even weeks away from the new biennium starting? No, and I had such a nice solstice celebration with friends yesterday, and I feel like I'm at least doing a good job, like doing a little resting and nourishing while I prepare for the new year. So I am very excited for the new biennium and very glad that I still have these two weeks left. Before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad to be talking with you today because we have been checking in with some of the committee members to talk about what they think their committee will be working on in the new biennium. And of course, you, at least for another two weeks, is the vice chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. It's time to check in with you. Yes. So, <laughs> so um, before we dive in, you and I were talking before the show started. And I shared with you just the way my brain looks at some of your committee work. And I was just for listeners, I was telling Emily that, you know, there are some committees who their job is to say, here's the pot of money and this is where it's going, like appropriations. And it's to me very straight line. And then like houseways and means to me is more like infrastructure. So, you know, how does money move through the system? And how does revenues come in? Where do expenses go out? And just like roads and bridges, we we tend to not pay attention to our infrastructure until it's not working very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's one reason I'm excited to talk to you about houseways and means because, yeah, this this idea of instru- infrastructure does that resonate with you or? Yeah, and. Never thought about it that way before. I'm really excited for this new frame to think my way through it because, as you know, I love thinking about taxes like as philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've now outed myself as the biggest dork that's ever come <laughs> on the <laughs> happy hour. <laughs> this will help our future guests feel more welcome. But yes, that really does resonate for me, partly because I think of taxes as sort of the not just the symbol, but like the symbol made practical or Mm. made tangible of this collective project of democracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In that, you know, we come together like from the fields and forests and towns, form civilization, have government. That's like a government is what organizes civilization, right? And Mm -hmm. the way government functions is with resources. Right. And the fact that we collectively raise those resources, ideally, you know, from each according to need and ability, um, like that's the work of the Ways and Means Committee. Mm-hmm. And so like weaving that idea in as if it's like the, I want to say turrets, but like that's not the word I want. What's the stuff inside the bridge with the metal rods? Yeah, good question. The framing, the... Yeah, no, it's like, anyway. Um, There's yeah. engineering's all over, engineers all over Vermont right now, like yelling at us. It's I know. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about like, yeah, I don't have any of the words here. But I was, um, I think that's a really effective metaphor, even though I don't have the words for it. And I think there's some, you know, one example that really comes to mind for me is the idea of, tax credits, which is essentially, you know, someone often having extra resources because they're not paying in for taxes towards a policy goal Mm -hmm. versus someone paying those taxes and those taxes going towards that policy goal Um, and how like that shapes that conversation so much. And so when I think about the child tax credit and this really incredible, you know, we passed the largest state child tax credit in the country this last year um, as sort of a follow on to the promise of the federal child tax credit in the, you know, um, in the pandemic. 
I think about all of these conversations that you and I have had, Olga, about the sort of industry that supports people living in poverty um, mm -hmm. and the barriers that are in place to make it hard to navigate those systems and how there are also policy tools we have that can just end poverty mm -hmm. rather than treating poverty. And I think the child right. tax is one of those. And so that's just like incredibly exciting to me. Um, mm -hmm. And there's so many other examples of that. That's just one. Um, and that's the case of a tax credit rather than an actual tax. But there are so many more. And I love to think about sort of that underlying structure. And when I've I've had a lot of conversations this summer about our property taxes and our school, right. specifically our school taxes on a part of a summer study committee. Um, but whenever I look at an individual tax and making an individual tax, um, have a smoother curve or not penalize someone or um, be more progressive. I think try to think about it also in the context of how all of um, both the taxes and the other benefits that someone receives from government all sort of add up into a comprehensive picture of a taxpayer's experience of Vermont. And so that's a really like, if I think about sort of that web and those curves as like, you know, the revenue infrastructure of the state, that's exciting to me. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. And for for Houseways and Means, what what are some of the things you think you'll be looking at this biennium? Um, you know, before I answer that, I would love mm. to just like do a teeny tiny definition because I know I'm going to use the word progressive about a thousand yes. times while we're talking. And yeah, I just want to be really good. clear that I mean that mathematically and not politically, um, mm -hmm. because those are I use that word for those two meanings often on this show and I'm they're very separate meanings um so progressive in terms of taxes means that folks essentially with less ability to pay pay less and folks with more ability to pay pay more um mm -hmm. and so it's not necessarily because 10 percent ten dollars from like all these different people might be 10 percent from one taxpayer and 0.01 percent from another taxpayer right right and so a flat tax could be ten dollars from everyone it could be ten percent from everyone but a progressive tax is usually when we think of like marginal tax rates that's mm -hmm. usually a progressive tax mm -hmm. so that's do you mean. uh can you give listeners an example uh in vermont where we might have a progressive tax versus what's a flat tax so a very clear progressive tax um is our income taxes and that there's like one bracket so and i don't have the tax brackets memorized please forgive me um that's why i have a computer <laughs> but essentially sort of at the lowest tax bracket you have a lower rate everyone pays that rate on their first say thirty thousand dollars in income right and then any income that you have between say 30 and 60 you pay a slightly higher rate on that chunk of income so that's mm -hmm. both a marginal rate and a progressive structure okay the marginal rates are used to create progressive structures so a marginal rate means you pay one and then each sort of chunk on top of it you pay just on that chunk on top of it and so as you sort of get into higher brackets the percentage increases that's a progressive tax rate mm -hmm. Um, there are like a bajillion flat taxes. Um, probably the easiest example is municipal property taxes. You know, you mm -hmm. vote on a rate and that's charged on, you know, per acre. Um, mm -hmm. You pay a price, you pay a tax per gallon on gasoline. Pro yeah, sales taxes. Sales tax. Sales taxes are generally considered regressive because um, mm. most the majority of sales that people engage in are considered necessities and it's everyone's paying the same rate. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So that has a smaller impact on the budget of people who have more money. And that's one of the reasons that we exempt most grocery products or all groceries from sales tax in Vermont is in order to make that flat tax um slightly more progressive right thank you 
Welcome. Okay. So your question was, what do I think is on the docket in 2023? Um, So one of the really fun things about the being on the Ways and Means Committee is we have our own tax policy work that we do um, around sort of crafting, you know, the state's revenue system and that revenue infrastructure that you described so aptly. Mm -hmm. And then we also get to figure out any of the revenue and fee pieces that are connected to any other committee's bills. So almost Mm -hmm. all committee bills from other committees come through the Ways and Means Committee and the Appropriations Committee. Does anything with, say, a change in a regulatory structure might necessitate a change in the fees that are connected to that mm-hmm. um, or a change in um, how a department is structured, if that department structure is supposed to be covered through fees or um, something that's just going to cost a lot and someone knows that it'll never get covered if they don't um, connect a revenue source to it or because we as we've talked about before on the show, because our education system is funded according to its need rather than mm-hmm. according to its budget, any new education spending always comes to, or any new oh, education okay. policy always comes to the Ways and Means Committee because it will have an immediate impact on taxpayers' property tax rates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we get to do all those things. So um, things that I think, bills that I think will come through from other committees that are going to be sort of heavier lifts for ways and means um, is universal family medical leave insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very excited about. I think we've talked about the need for that on this show many times. Um, But certainly since the pandemic, just how much I think families deserve and need that insurance in order to make their lives work, in order to care for themselves and others. It's just like, it's a big policy I've been championing for a while. Um, and we've come close to passing it a number of times. And so um, setting the insurance rate for that is going to be the work of the Ways and Means Committee. And we have a big lift coming this year for universal child care, universal affordable accessible child care. We've talked about that on the show before. Yep. Um, and so there are a lot of questions about how that will be funded. Um, And there's a study coming out about a month into the session that will point us towards how much that system is expected to cost. Oh, okay. Once we have a sense of how much that system is expected to cost, the study is going to have a few revenue sources in it as sort of example revenue sources, but it's not going to be like a clear plan for revenue. Right. Looking forward to seeing that and reading that to figure that one out. Um, they're big questions because right now part of our child care is paid for as part of our public school system through mm-hmm. the not universal, but called universal pre-K system. And right. I think Teresa and I, you know, spent a <laughs> you riffed on that a little bit. <laughs> yes. Um, and then part of it is paid for through federal money um, called CCFAP, Child Care Financial Assistance Program. And that goes through the Agency of Human Services. And so already, um, child Early care and education in Vermont is funded through two different agencies. Mm. Um, So that's a really, that have a lot of governance challenges amongst themselves. And so it's one of those places where it's not just about finding out where the money is going to come from, but also finding out how the way, the architecture of how the money flows influences the governance Mm -hmm. and the administration of these programs. And so that's a really interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Excited about that. I think there are a lot of conversations about housing right now. Yes. And so I think one of, certainly there will be a number of housing bills that come through the committee. Um, Changes in zoning designations often trigger a review by Ways and Means because there are a few tax credits that are connected to zoning designations. So neighborhood development areas or downtown designations all have Mm -hmm. tax credits connected to them. So when when the designation changes, that might mean that those the tax credit eligibility gets expanded. And mm. so that would come through ways and means. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there are also a lot of conversations happening right now about our property taxes and how they might meet or not meet the needs of our housing market. And so that will be a, like a ways and means centered conversation, one of our sort of tax policy conversations mm-hmm. that I'm looking forward to. Um, I had a really interesting conversation with all of the trash haulers in Wyndham County the other day. 
No kidding. Yeah. Um, we have a all of the Wyndham County delegation sets aside mm -hmm. three or four days um, each biennium to meet with basically like every right. nonprofit interest group, et cetera, that wants to meet with us. Um, historically, we would sort of go hither and yon and, you know, wind up at breakfast in 5,000 places. And we decided <laughs> to consolidate and really just sort of like that way people are, have a much better chance of meeting with each of us because so many of us work and have sort of wild schedules. So anyway, um, Sarah Coffey was kind enough to invite all the trash haulers. And I think partly because I live in Brattleboro where we have really just like such deep municipal services. I yeah. have not spent as much time thinking about trash haulers as I should have. <laughs> and I can't think about everything. Um, no, this is true. But we spent a lot of time on the bottle on a bottle bill last oh, biennium that in the right. end did not pass. Um, it got stuck in the Senate. But what was interesting in talking to the trash haulers is that when we were talking about the bottle bill last biennium, um, it really... And it comes to ways and means because we were the ones who had set both the amount, um, the refund like the rate, yep. yeah, the redemption, the deposit rate, um, which actually then that money, sort of talking about the architecture of money, when you pay that money, that deposit, um, that fund, that um, the term for what happens is you're actually, um, that money is Escheated. I can never say it. It's like my favorite word that I can't ever say. It's E S C H E A T S, I think. And it's it's sort of like a trust tax, but it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, it's sort of like held. Lost property is in that same category. It's like okay, anyone's. It's just like sitting there. Um, a trust tax is that a merchant holds a tax on behalf of government and then remits it to government. But things mm. that are sheeted are like in this like liminal, no one owns them space. Those oh, dollars. interesting. The lost property is one of them that sits in the treasurer's office. And then this is deposits like this or another one. I'm glad you think it's interesting. I think mm, it's I do actually. <laughs> very metaphysical. Um, it's like money like, just sitting in the yes. ether. <laughs> and so there's this word for like the liminal money that is impossible to pronounce, but it looks very nice on paper. Anyway. So we we're having these conversations about the button. There's like another fee attached to it that's not worth getting into. But in the conversations about the bottle bill, which got very heated, Ooh, it was really this conversation between like Casella Waste, which has, is like pretty much a massive monopoly on huge parts of our waste disposal and recycling systems in Vermont and the environmental lobby. Mm -hmm. And that was like how the whole conversation was framed. But in talking to all, we have like a huge number of small trash haulers in Wyndham County, yeah. apparently a lot more than other counties hmm. um, where there's, it's mostly a monopoly, but like we've had all of these family trash hauling businesses really like um, sustain themselves here in Wyndham County. And they have to go quite far in order to do their, um, their roots dumping, but their roots, the tipping before yeah. they, so anyway, in talking to them, they would love the bottle bill because the more glass that's removed from the waste stream of the recycling that they pick up, the cheaper it is for them because it's so heavy. So wine oh. bottles and what like, so anyway, they would love for the bottle bill to pass, which was like not at all the story that we were getting. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited to have like another bottle bill conversation. I feel like really hyped up on that now from this really great conversation with the trash haulers. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. You wouldn't see that coming. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I live on Good Enough Road and I got to meet one of the Good Enoughs from Good Enough um, rubbish. And so that was mm -hmm. really. Anyway, so that's something else I'm excited about for this upcoming year. Um, what else? Um, big conversation about school construction and PCBs. Oh, yes. We, you know, most states have a statewide fund of some kind for school construction. Vermont mm -hmm. did for a long time and then it stopped. Um, some individual school districts are able to bond for their school construction needs and some communities are not able to pass a bond because of community flavor. 
let's call Whatever. it. Whatever. Yeah. The, the, the way the votes go. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that creates like huge inequities in the quality of our school buildings around the state. Mm -hmm. And so we have this um, like 20 year school construction overview that's taken three years to develop. We're getting part of it this year and another part of it next year. Um, and they're looking at every single school building in the state and doing like a really full appraisal of what is needed construction. Wow. Wow. Simultaneous with that and separately, we have a PCB study coming um, following up on Burlington High School, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, every student at Burlington High School got moved into the Macy's and the mall downtown because they couldn't be in the school building. They now need to tear the building down. They're suing. Oh, I don't remember that part. Monsanto. It's not Monsanto. They're suing some huge chemical company that I should remember the name of, um, who created the PCBs. And now the company is suing the school district, telling them they can't tear down the building because it's part of the court record. You know, it's part of the court stuff. And I'm a little short on words today. Um, but anyway. So all over the state, there's probably some degree of PCB contamination in schools that were built sort of all within the same decade. Mm -hmm. and so in um, Wyndham Southeast, there's one school likely was a little bit of PCB contamination. And so we're having a conversation about what's the cost of mitigating all of those PCBs. Right. And so those two conversations need to come together because a lot of school construction would actually mitigate the PCBs. A lot of PCB mitigation would probably be, you know, important construction. Yeah. We need to find not just money um, to do that, but we also need to find a way to equitably decide which schools get that funding, right. what schedule. Right. And so that's going to be a really fun conversation with the treasurer, likely, around like what it would look like for the state to bond on behalf of schools and behalf of communities. How do we prioritize all of that? Looking forward to that. There's some great examples from Massachusetts and Rhode Island that I'm looking forward to. Hmm. Um, yeah. And there's just like a million other, million other little things. But I think the really big ones are like childcare, family medical leave, school construction, and then, um, like fun internal ways and means policy conversations around property taxes, around corporate taxes, um, like really getting into the, getting into the weeds. So Curiosity question, Emily. Mm -hmm. There's a number of committees that can, for lack of a better term, they're kind of, when it comes to policy, they're kind of generative. Someone, you know, people sponsor a bill and it goes to the, to a committee. And, and there are some that are really obvious, like agricultural issues are going to ag, the ag committee, that type of thing. Does ways it it seems to me just in what you're sharing that ways and means is more of maybe a receiving committee rather than um do how often do bills really go straight from being sponsored to your your committee or do you oh. tend to wait more for other bills to come from other committees? Does that um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand your question. So the way like I would think about it in sort of legislative terminology, your question is like, do we have the same number of bills that are sort of like just sent directly after first reading to our wall mm -hmm. as other committees? Um, I think we usually have like around 30 bills on the wall from other committees. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that's like, I think that's probably on the lower side, but not like extremely lower than some policy committees. Mm -hmm. Some policy committees get a lot. It feels like around the same number of bills that might go to commerce, but maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and then we, yes, we get a huge number from other committees, but we move through them pretty fast. Mm -hmm. um, and so the number of bills sort of like on the wall at any time is usually like right around the number of bills that have been sent directly to the committee. Um, mm -hmm. And we tend to not, historically, in my experience on Ways and Means, we tend to not pick up that many of the bills from the wall um, because our focus really is on either the bills that are coming in from other committees that need to be cared for as part of, a, you know, all the hard work that that com other committee has done or um, be generating committee bills on sort of these broader tax issues. Usually the bills that get sent 
on first reading that are sponsored by other members who aren't on the committee are usually like funny little tweaks um, that like someone discovered. And sometimes we'll integrate that into like another technical bill or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, another member discovered this last session, something funny about how like property inheritance um, worked between like parents, but not between siblings and like should mm -hmm. siblings be able to inherit directly from each other um, without paying certain gains taxes. And it was stuff like that. So like, that's the kind of thing that happens. Um, very rarely are those revenue raising bills. Hmm. Okay. Usually those are, um, revenue reduction bills. Oh, interesting. Okay. That I think deserves a tax credit. That would be the, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, how it sounds like just a lot of work and I'm, I'm wondering, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, if a bill has a heavy lift, like we've been talking about paid family leave for a while, mm -hmm. it has to go through a number of committees before reaching you. Yeah. But it sounds like there's a risk of things getting held up in mm -hmm. ways and means. If you just, if you have such a churn. Um, we have a really good committee assistant. Mm -hmm. who does an incredible job making sure that we have sort of the witnesses. Um, I also, it's a really interesting position to be in as a member. So there's one thing when you vote for something in the, your policy committee and you've like hashed that thing to death, you've pulled it apart, you've put it back together, you've heard from everyone who's ever had a feeling about the thing you're going to do, you have like discussed it. And so like when you get to your yes or no, you've like really found your way to whatever that is in mm -hmm. a meaningful way. And then when you're on the house floor, um, there's sort of an expectation that you're, um, if you're in a majority party, you're gonna vote yes, unless you have like a really strong reason to vote no. Mm -hmm. um, and you do your best to understand the issue, but there isn't sort of an expectation that you understand everything about that issue. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, in the case of a money committee who sort of gets that next round, you don't have time to pull it apart and put it back together. Hmm. And so, but you need to like really vote on it in a very meaningful way. Mm -hmm. um, Cause you're sort of validating that piece of legislation on behalf of the whole body. Interesting. And this is sort of like a little bit of an inside baseball cultural thing. So if it gets boring, like mm -mm. at me or something and the people on the radio won't hear. <laughs> um, but we so we do our very, very best and it's very hard to do sometimes and we don't always succeed, nor should we always try to succeed at this to only focus on the aspects of a bill that are related to revenue. Mm -hmm. the other policy things there on the table um and trust that that committee has done its work but it is hard because like once you got your hands in something you kind of want to pull it all apart <laughs> well i can imagine it's a little bit like our conversations with charter changes in that the town has vetted this charter change so just to prove what the town has vetted. And yet I can imagine when you see some of these charter changes, you want to, you want to get your thumbs in them. Oh my goodness. Yes. And I am like <laughs> very rigid about charter changes. Um, and I vote for them because that's the will of like hundreds and thousands of voters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is like six people thought this was a good idea. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like you know thousands of people thought those six people should be in office making this decision so like who am I so um but anyway that's like sort of a funny part so we like tend to really just try to narrow our focus on those bills that are moving through that seem like they'd be um might be more time consuming right and Wonderful. then something like say the family medical leave insurance bill um while we might not pick it up in committee until the bill formally came over, there's background work that the Joint Fiscal Office would be doing on it. And they're a very, very close partner of the committee. And so they do a lot of 
work to prepare for anything that's coming into our committee. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I can imagine there's a lot of implications you need to understand that policies could have yeah. on, on revenue and impact on people and yeah. Yeah. So uh, we are out of time in this first half of the Montpelier happy hour. So everybody here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on BCTV and many of the uh, public access stations around Vermont and even a few in other states in New England, which is kind of exciting. Uh, you can also find us wherever you find your podcasts and on our Captivate page. Hey, Emily. Hey, Olga. What are we going to remind people of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the hosts and the guests, not the station that is broadcasting those thoughts. Wonderful. Thank you. So we, we're going to talk about wealth in the second half, but I think the other thing we need to riff on is um, we're coming to the end of 2022. That is the rumor. <laughs> Yeah, we have one more show before uh, the calendar changes. Uh, so what do you think? We, we have to design our 2022 cocktail. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, we may have to think about it until next week. <laughs> yeah. If um, I was designing my 22, uh, 2022 cocktail, as you know, I've had a bit bit of upheaval in my life. So I think I would need something you could set on fire. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I have also had a year full of transitions and a lot of new beginnings. And mm -hmm. 2023 is going to include even more new beginnings. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's definitely a thing. Um, I don't want to call a cocktail the new beginning because that just, I don't actually want to drink that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I may need to think about it some more until next week. I mean, yeah. And I've been playing, I went down to provisions in Northampton. Ooh, fun. Yeah. And um, I actually sent pictures of the fancy liquor I bought to Wendy Knight, the commissioner of liquor, to be like, look, we could have nice things in Vermont, too. We um, could. <laughs> but, um, gosh, that's so off track. But um, <laughs> there's this amazing bergamot and rose Italian liqueur oh. that I bought. Oh, my gosh. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And it's just like. First of all, it is just like so I've been using the term lady people instead of like femmes or women and I don't know like how it happened and it just feels like for me it's this like big taking back of a term. Um mm -hmm. but also feels like more gender expansive than women. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, I feel like the Italian bergamot and rose liqueur is just like the most lady people of uh mixer. And so it's fantastic with gin, it's fantastic mm -hmm. with like any of your sparkling wines, and it makes just like a very nice light um thing with some seltzer and a little mm -hmm. wedge of lemon. But I don't know if that's the drink of the year. I mean, I just be like a thing that's delicious right now. So let's keep on maybe thinking about it. Okay. We shall do that. We'll have to design our 2022 cocktail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll see what, so next week we'll have Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets Institute on. Uh, so maybe she can weigh in on it too. Yeah, yeah. And maybe I'll, we should warn her in advance. <laughs> By the way, not only okay. do you have to talk about the economy, you yeah. need to design a cocktail. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, like we have both had a lot of upheaval and change. And I think, I think a lot emerges from that. And what I've been sitting with in terms of my policy, political, legislative life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I felt like I had to hyphenate that, but is those conversations that we had early in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And um, there was this part, there was um, right around the same time that Arundhati Roy was talking about the pandemic as a portal. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you remember that. We talked about that a lot. Um, There was this video by an activist named Valerie Kaur, K-A-U-R, Mm-hmm. And she was talking about sort of the darkness that we were in right now and talking about how maybe it's not the darkness of death, but it's in fact the darkness of the birth canal and we're like emerging into something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like those two, th- I'm still sitting with those possibilities and not like in a naive, optimistic way. Mm-hmm. But just like a real curiosity, like what's available if I try to think of my work in that mode? Yeah. Like from all of this struggle, what does this struggle make possible? What mm-hmm. do people see because we are struggling that they wouldn't have seen otherwise? What, um, what is like more than alleviating suffering, but actually creation? Um, that kind of thing. So that's, those are my deeply philosophical New Year's thoughts for you. Um, (laughs) And also like in this time of like deep, deep hibernation. Yeah. And like looking at the small lights of the candles and the fires. um, Been thinking a lot about what a politics looks like when like we're really settled into our bodies, Mm -hmm. settled into our communities and not being reactive and righteous and scared um but instead like steady and curious and connected Mm -hmm. so those are my intentions in the new year nice I haven't really set intentions yet I what I have been sitting with myself you know based on this year of upheaval trying to really sit with and see like where do I need to keep forging something like if you think about like Mm -hmm. making a a sculpture or Mm -hmm. like where do you need to just keep carving and forging so that you can um make something out of this hunk of rock you've been Mm -hmm. given um and where do I just need to embrace it as it is Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes over this past few months, that hasn't been clear, Mm -hmm. um, but try to, to try to be better at seeing that, like, where do I need to keep fighting Mm -hmm. or or forging and, and where do I need to embrace? Yeah, I guess I have been working on not thinking about things that, um, dualistically Mm -hmm. because in legislative work, um, I'm so scared of giving up mm-hmm. um, of the idea of giving up or releasing. And so I think for everything that we sort of release from and like follow along the current, that also shapes that. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's that like, as we're shaping something, we're also releasing from the things that are sloughed off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's, I don't think there is as much of attention there as you are describing necessarily. Yeah, I for me, I don't think it's so much of attention as in how am I using my energy and my resources? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, hear that. <laughs> um, so. Speaking of resources. Yeah, let's talk about wealth. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, um, gave this training recently with a few other people with Steph Yu from the Public Assets Institute, who's coming on next week, um, yeah. and with Colin Robinson from the, um, NEA, the teachers union, okay. um, about education, finance in Vermont. And, um, 
education in most of the country is funded out of the property tax. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really actually helpful to start with a history lesson in okay. order to understand that. And that's like essentially that schools were some of the very first things that were ever built by communities with collective resources in the colonies, right? Or in oh, America, okay. right? Like what else was built? Probably churches or Different places stuff. of worship. Yeah, yeah. And there's a system from the old country about building churches though, right? Like you tithe to build churches and True. that's sort of like True. taxes, but it's a little bit different, right? Yep. Um, and so, and property at that time when property taxes were first created was actually defined more broadly than it is now. Hmm. Uh, so properties for the purpose of property taxes was any sort of tangible good that you had. And mm -hmm. so property wasn't just your land. It was also like the buildings on your land, right? We use that yeah. in property tax now, but it also include like your oxen and your wagon, right? Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. And the reason that we used that as a way of figuring out how much taxes someone owed was because it was like a very close proxy for the amount of wealth someone had at that time in America, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, that's where people kept their wealth at that time in America. They didn't mm -hmm. keep it gold. They didn't have necessarily like, you know, we were just creating corporations. Um, and so wealth was held in tangible goods. And those tangible goods stood, you know, you knew how much had any resource someone had because you could see it and you could count it. And that's how you charge taxes. What's interesting is that we've actually, rather than broadening that definition of property, mm -hmm. we've actually narrowed it a little bit. Right? So it just includes land and and buildings. Okay. And buildings. We don't include those other sort of tangible goods that someone has. Um, and then sort of the other way that we tax someone's wealth other than property is income. Because mm -hmm. that was sort of the second round of how we might understand wealth. People started working more professional jobs. We like built a middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we didn't build a middle class, black people built a middle class, really, like slaves built a middle class, yes. but, but you know, yeah. onwards from there. Um, and that middle class, their major wealth could be measured in income, how much they mm -hmm. got a, made a year, right? And you wouldn't want to just say how much someone had in their bank account, because at that time, people were really like spending that money as it was coming in. And so the best proxy for sort of how much ability someone had to pay at that then became income. Okay. Now, middle-class people still income, best proxy for wealth, for ability mm -hmm. to pay. But wealthy people, property is not a good proxy for the most part someone's like land or houses is probably a very, very, very tiny percentage of the amount of assets that a wealthy mm. person has. Mm -hmm. And their annual income is often also not a very useful proxy of the amount of assets that a very wealthy person has because their income might be how they're drawing down on a trust annually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Often they're not working for wages or even salary, right? right? Um, there are a lot of ways of moving debt around yep. in contemporary financial markets so that actually you can derive, like you can live on credit that you get from assets that you're not touching, right? Mm-hmm. And so right now in America, we actually don't, and like, these are not my own brilliant thoughts, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. Warren's been, it's probably like, you know, a yes. talking about this. Like, I don't mean to see these, say these are my brilliant thoughts. I'm just saying that a Ways and Means Committee that is doing its work well is building, like you said, the infrastructure for state revenues. And when we build infrastructure, we don't build infrastructure for the year we're living in. We build infrastructure that's supposed to last 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we need to be constantly looking into the future for what is the next 
how is wealth held? What is the most effective way to know ability to pay? Or to even just know where the money is in our communities, right? Like mm -hmm. taxes should come from where the money is in a community, right? Like that's what taxes are. And so we need to be constantly shifting our definitions and our understanding of ability to pay and resources in order to be building a tax structure that's resilient to future. Um, mm -hmm. And right now, what that looks like is figuring out ways to like maybe move beyond these narrow definitions of property and these narrow definitions of income to really understand like what wealth looks like in these very dynamic international almost entirely ai driven like <laughs> financial markets right mm -hmm. um, and so that's like you know it's something that the irs is like not really catching up on um mm -hmm. it's something that biden and elizabeth warren have done a decent amount of talking about um mm -hmm. in the context of the billionaires tax um and it's something that we've done a little bit of with our corporate tax regime in Vermont last year, okay. um, but we can do more on. But with regards to personal wealth, we have not even begun to scratch the surface of what that means and how to do it at a state level. And so I'm like very curious about that as we sort of enter the next decade in our state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, looking for the right words. For, for lack of a better better words, what does wealth look like in Vermont? Um, and the reason I ask that is because I think people are, we're, we're not very good at really knowing like, oh, so this income level makes me solid middle class or, or because I have this X, Y, and Z, that puts me in this bracket. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not so sure we're we're good at being able to see those things. So, yeah, and I think that's a conversation that like will be hashed out well with Steph next mm -hmm. week. Um, but first of all, like we can't, we're not an island. We're not even right. close to an island. We are a teeny tiny state with very few people in the midst of a very large country with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, here in Brattleboro, live on the border of two other states. Yeah like tight border, right? So it's silly. I think it is silly on some level to have these conversations in isolation. And we have a state government and I'm a legislator in that state government. So of course I have to have those conversations to some degree in isolation. Um, last time I checked, the 1% in Vermont was just folks with an income of like over $180,000 a year, $190,000 a year. Oh, wow. That is not true in most other states. No. Vermont is also one of the only states in the country, possibly the only state in the country without a billionaire. No kidding. One of our own billionaire. Yeah. I don't know if like maybe the governor's tourism and marketing board wants to like go out and find us one. <laughs> pay, the, pay them $5,000 to move here. I don't know. <laughs> It'd be helpful. Every state needs their own pet billionaire. Um, but no, we don't. <laughs> Please I, I know we don't we don't allow attitude. billboards, but I can see the billboard anyway. Yeah. Yes, please forget my blithe attitude towards the billionaires. Um, it's actually an atrocity that that's acceptable. Mm -hmm. Well, people are hungry and homeless, but um. So anyway, we don't have a billionaire. Our one percent is very low. Um. And so, what's interesting is like what is the you know. Class in America is complicated. I think class in Vermont is even more complicated. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone wants to be working class here. I have to work an hourly wage to be working class. Like that's sort of the definition, one of the definitions of working class. Not that many people really do that anymore. Um, middle class, is it like, are we talking about like the mathematical middle class or are we talking about a cultural middle class? Are we talking about education levels? We have some of the highest college education rates in the country, mm -hmm. um, some of the highest high school graduation rates in the country. Um, that's not, we don't have some of the highest rates of high schoolers going to college. We tend to have yes. college educated people come here from away. So like mm -hmm. those numbers are weird. Um, but 
We are certainly less wealthy than a lot of states. We have not updated those numbers. I've not seen updates to those numbers since the pandemic, though. And okay. we know that a lot of wealth um, has come into the state since then. Mm -hmm. um, one other thing that I think is very interesting about wealth in Vermont is that in a lot of other states, um, farmers are some of the very richest people. And that is not how we talk about America a lot of the time. Right. Um, but it is true in a lot of areas of the country um, that there's, it's like sort of the small town gentry is the farmer, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is not true in Vermont. Right. Our towns are much smaller than that. Mm -hmm. um, though some of the generational wealth that's been possible from some of those firms actually has made that true. It's just less mm -hmm. true than it is in some other states. Um, and so those are some of the interesting dynamics about wealth in Vermont. I don't, um, I think I'll pause there. That's what I, I think we could dig into that more with stuff though. I think that'd be fun. Yeah. I look forward to that. Um, well, and, and I, there's so much around the conversation around wealth and class that is just so loaded. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's, emotionally where we put ourselves versus what our bank account might say and they're not always the same thing absolutely in all directions um and i think it's a really interesting thing in the legislature um when we talk about it because both because legislators like everywhere else in the country are wealthier than the general population but also because our communities are so small mm. um everyone like tends to have a personal relationship of some kind with a fairly wealthy person in their community, mm -hmm. um, which I think is not true in a lot of the country. Right. And so that's a really, you know, NPR, VPR did like this um, interesting series on class. Um, and Erica Heilman from Rumble Strip did like one of the episodes of it. It was like last month or something. Oh, okay. I missed that. Um, and her episode was just like this really fun interview with this woman in the kingdom, just like going on about how she perceives class. And it was great. I really recommend it. Um, but all to say, like, it's personal here in a way that it mm -hmm. isn't. And I think, um, you know, the reactivity of politics all over the country, um, I think the reactivity around class is harder for people here, even though the impacts of class and the impacts of wealth disparity is just as extreme and difficult here as it is anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, everybody circle back uh, to next week because Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets Institute will be with us and we'll be talking more about that and also the annual State of Working Vermont report that the Public Assets Institute puts out every year. And um, I love that report. I it just it's no, my it's, favorite report. I mean, I think it's a very good report too, but I also just like love how much you love it. <laughs> um so Emily, you know, the the conversation about wealth, I think it's to uh, circles us back a little bit to where we started this conversation in the first half of the hour. Looking at some of the the philosophy and the structures that under un, like hold up our financial system mm -hmm. are there and and I know sorry I I know that you've worked a lot on school education funding and I think you were on a task force to look at turning the education funding from a property-based income tax to a a, a property-based tax to an income-based tax mm -hmm. Um, what are some other things you're you're looking at? Are there other um, concepts or philosophies or um, ways that that you feel our tax system could work better and be more equitable? Um, and that task force wrapped up yesterday, actually. So if anyone is like hot and excited to see our report, it should be um, posted in the next couple of weeks to the website. So very cool. That website, we have our own committee website 
that is hosted on the Joint Fiscal Office website, which you can find the link for on the legislature's website. Okay. Anyway. Um, so other things I'm thinking about. So one conversation um, that I think is very poignant is the conversation about the wealth gap, um, particularly with regards to Black people in America. Mm -hmm. And I read this really incredible book about sort of um, causes and solutions for it. And mm -hmm. one very interesting detail to me was this idea of joint versus single filing. Hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 Have I talked about this on the show before. No, but I was reading something yeah. about yeah, it recently. I'm really? Um, and the idea of a joint filing um, really prioritizes and benefits families where only one person works over families where two people work. Mm -hmm. um, and that we know that families where only one person works tend to be wealthier families and tend right. to be whiter families. And that's just like a really interesting piece of the whole puzzle to me, like how the tax system would prioritize one family structure over another, right? Right, right. Um, so that's something that I sit with in terms of fairness in the tax system um, and is just like a nightmare to un unravel yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so that's one um other things i think about is how and when it's appropriate to use taxes as a tool for policy change mm. or behavior change kind of like syntax yes or, i have yeah. yes um so you know People feel very good about taxes on tobacco with the idea that if it got more expensive, less people would smoke um, and less people are smoking now. And so people think that's validation for the fact that, you know, um, I don't know how many poor people gave more than their fair share to the government um, mm -hmm. of those cigarette taxes. Yeah. And like, I understand that it's like, probably, you know, it's, it's good for public health that less people smoke. Mm -hmm. um, there are always conversations around sugar taxes, right? Um, for very similar conversation, and the idea is if like if it pays for our public nutrition campaign, doesn't that make it worth it? If it pays for school lunches, doesn't it make it worth it? Mm -hmm. um, there was a re there was a study that just came out around opening up sports betting in Vermont. Um, that sort of is the other end of sin taxes. So if something is illegal, like say sex work or sports betting or cannabis, mm -hmm. why not regulate it, make it slightly safer and have um, public benefit from that revenue? Mm -hmm. um, that's always an interesting question, sort of yeah. on that same thread. Um. I was thinking about library fines today. And oh, I was right. like, what's my favorite? What's my favorite tax or fee? <laughs> I was thinking about library fines just because I used to like love to pay them. Like I would have been like, you know, a derelict person because I hadn't turned a like terrible library delinquent. My book was late because I was like enjoying it too much or like whatever, mm -hmm. you know, where I like felt it. reader. Yeah. I didn't want to, or just like I had a hard week or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And then like I'd get a library fine. I'd be like, oh, I don't mind like giving five bucks to my library. Like this is not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. This is great. Like, because I believe in where the revenue is going. So I like mm -hmm. don't mind paying it. And then in Brattleboro and many other places in the country, they realized that the policy goal of fining people, which they thought was to get people to return their books, was actually just making a lot of people scared of the library. And so they just stopped and like yeah. that ability to stop and be like, oh no, we're not doing what we think we're doing with our moralistic nonsense. And like pivoting <laughs> is so cool. And I like yeah. want to be that flexible of a tax creator. So that's another one. That's like some more philosophy of taxes that I think are interesting. Um, and then the last one that I'll sort of put into the hopper is how does 
one revenue source now and the investments that come from that revenue source create more revenue in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think about that one a lot. So like how does raising revenue to pay for family medical leave insurance both save money because um, children have happier, healthier beginnings, maternal child health is stronger, people are more able to stay in their jobs longer term because they have that stability in a hard time, all of that, how does that make like a healthier population to save money from the state because the state pays for negative health outcomes? And how does that get more revenue into the state because people are working more and making more at work? Right. And so that is like another fun philosophy of the tax system that I think about a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's ultimately the long-term ramifications of yes. our decisions mm-hmm. and our policy. Yep. Yeah. Well, Emily, thank you so much. We are out of time here on the Montpelier Happy Hour, but as always, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. If- as the sun sets around us, we better get off the call soon, Olga. I can see both of our like rooms. If people want to learn more about you, Emily, where do they go? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org. You'll find links to my newsletter sign up and my newsletters and my email and my social medias. I have been on a bit of a hiatus with updating it because everyone deserves a hiatus. And mm-hmm. I will jump back in to the communication pit. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bottomless pit. <laughs> Yes. Well, and as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, every Friday at two, as well as our Captivate page, our Facebook page, and wherever you find your podcasts. See you next week, everyone. Have a great weekend. <laughs>